From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, experts speak out on white supremacists in the military. They saw swastikas on military bases. They saw individuals saluting, using the Nazi salute with one another. There were, you know, kind of graffiti, things that we find that we wouldn't expect to find in the military. With reports that members of hate groups are among the troops deployed against anti-racist protesters, we spent the hour hearing from researchers testifying earlier this year before Congress. Media outlets reported that a master sergeant in the Air Force was an active member of Identity Europa, one of the most visible neo-Nazi and white supremacist organizations in Colorado. That's a whole lot of minority troops, right, troops of color, who are suffering under this situation. And, and frankly, it would be a hostile work environment if it was in, mm-hmm. in the civilian world. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. While the specter of militarized federal agents deployed against and often attacking peaceful anti-racist protesters did make headlines that we have reported on for this show. But lesser known is the fact that members of the National Guard deployed at the protesters have either been kicked out of the military or are under investigation for ties to white supremacist hate groups. So that's right, racists were employed to police and in many cases to brutally assault anti-racist protesters. In the context of the uprising against racist police terror and the militarized response to it, we're going to hear for the full hour experts testifying on February 11, 2020, about white supremacists in the military. And this is before the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Military Personnel. Chaired by Representative Jackie Speer of California, the panel included Heidi Byrick, co-founder and chief strategy officer of Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Mark Pitkavich, senior research fellow for the Center on Extremism at the Anti-Defamation League. And Leisha Brooks, chief officer for workplace transformation at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Military Personnel Subcommittee will come to order. Uh, The hearing today is to uh, discuss a very important issue and one that um, hopefully we'll get some important answers to. Uh, This issue could not be more urgent. Three weeks ago, a New York Times article revealed that the FBI had arrested seven members of an organization called The Base, a dangerous white supremacist group. They aren't your parents' neo-Nazis. The base is an accelerationist, paganistic, anarchic group whose name speaks to the admiration for Al-Qaeda and ISIS. They hate Jews and African Americans, but they don't like President Trump or the United States either. Their goal is to use terrorism to start a race war and collapse the United States. 
Triggering societal collapse may be a sick fantasy, but the reality is that domestic terror has claimed more lives than international terror since 9-11. There are several warning signs that individuals with white nationalist and supremacist tendencies are, in fact, serving in our military. Recent high-profile examples include a Marine attending the 2017 Charlottesville rally, a Coast Guard officer arrested with a cache of weapons, and a West Point grad espousing hate on social media. Last week, a Military Times survey showed that the number of troops who have witnessed evidence of white supremacists and racial ideologies in the military increased from 22 to 36 percent from 2018 to 2019. Like in previous decades, as supremacist activities marked by events such as Charlottesville have increased in recent years, it has likely increased in the military as well. And supremacists in the military put service members' safety, recruitment, and retention at risk. I'm concerned that the military doesn't take this threat seriously enough, has the tools it needs, or dedicates sufficient resources to the threat. Our accessions and vetting enterprise lumps white supremacist activity in with gang affiliation rather than treat it as a national security issue on par with foreign terror. That lack of urgency and focus trickles down to commanders and enlisted leaders who don't appear to be sufficiently apprised of this threat or taught how to deal with it. Even if they are dealing with it, the military lacks statistics to prove it, in part because the absence of a standalone UCMJ extremism article. This raises hard questions about whether military law enforcement needs additional authorities to combat this terror threat. Today, we will be joined by two panels. The first will consist of experts from organizations that study, track, and educate on extremism. I'd like to focus on three main concerns today. First, what is the scope and magnitude of this threat, and what are its impacts? Second, what is being done to prevent these individuals from entering the military, and then find, investigate, and prosecute them? Do military leaders take this issue seriously enough? Some of the testimony will suggest that many of them are just administratively discharged. Nothing further is done about them. That is inconsistent with our need to make sure that the country is secure as well. Third, what additional tools might we need to give the military to combat this threat? Uh, Thank you, witnesses, for joining us today. You will have five minutes to present your testimony. Uh, I would also like to ask unanimous consent that non-committee members be allowed to participate and ask questions after all the committee members have had the opportunity to ask questions. Without objection? Without objection. So ordered. Okay. Our our first panel starts with Dr. Heidi Bayrich, co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Dr. Mark Pekavage. Senior Research Fellow at the Center on Extremism at the Anti-Defamation League, Ms. Leisha Brooks, Chief Workplace Transformation Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. So, would you like to begin? My name is Heidi Byrick. 
I have a PhD in political science from Purdue University, and I'm the co-founder of the newly established Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. For the last two decades, I have researched extremist activity in the United States and monitored white supremacists in the military, often forwarding that information to military investigators. I also argued, as I will today, for more vigilant practices and stronger policies to root out extremists from the ranks. Barring white supremacists from the military is of the utmost importance. As my written testimony documents, the problem of white supremacists in the ranks is a serious and growing one. Many of us know of former soldiers with extremist views who have gone on to commit serious acts of terrorism. Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City is the one that most people usually think of. But this isn't an old problem. Just in this past year, active duty troops have been found to be involved in white supremacist groups responsible for murders and domestic terrorism plots, and in some cases, international terrorism. And white supremacy and the terror associated with it is on the rise. In fact, bucking the trend of declining rates of terror globally. We have a growing white supremacist movement, both in the United States and abroad. Some of these folks are training white supremacists in other countries on military tactics. This is a significant threat to our troops, to the American public, and folks in other countries. The armed services own soldiers know that white supremacy is a problem. It's already been cited. The Military Times has done a poll three years in a row that shows between one in four and one in three soldiers are aware of have encountered white nationalism or racism in the armed forces. So here are just my top-level recommendations to deal with white supremacy in the armed forces. It's very clear that screening measures need strengthening. The military doesn't have a tattoo database, for example, that shows extremist tattoos. It doesn't have clear procedures to investigate social media accounts, which is where you find most extremism nowadays. It might be wise to consider how the online activities of active duty troops are monitored. The recent arrest of a Coast Guard lieutenant who had all this kind of horrible stuff online tells us what this could lead to if we're not paying attention. Uh, Military recruits do fill out questionnaires that ask whether they've been a member of an organization dedicated to terrorism, but this process relies on self-reporting, and it's unclear how much that self-reporting is verified. There's need for more rigorous enforcement procedures and data, as has already been mentioned by the ranking member. The regulations against racism and white supremacy are generally strong, but if they're not enforced, they're paper tigers. Current regulations have penalties that are largely left up to commanders, often at the unit level. There appears to be no process to track people expelled for ties to white supremacist groups. There's little data in the public domain to know how serious this problem is. All of these are serious issues, as well as it being unclear how information on extremists in one branch is shared with other branches or the Guard or the FBI. There need to be mandatory reports every year about the levels of white supremacy in the military. There was a House amendment that intended to add questions about white nationalism to military climate surveys that was dropped out of the National Defense Authorization Act. I would suggest that this should be looked at again. The Pentagon's investigatory task forces in each branch should be looked at, how they look at extremist networks, what level of investigatory resources exist there, and then data should be generated so that we know how serious the problem is. There are also loopholes in the regulations for other kinds of extremists. One example are folks involved in the anti-government militia movement. These are people who believe in war against the federal government and are increasingly anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim. And some of these organizations have thousands of members and specifically try to recruit from the armed forces. 
the military needs to report hate crime statistics to the FBI. Frankly, all federal agencies need to. But this is another piece of data that would be helpful for understanding these problems. And there also is evidence the existence of extremists in the ranks is now contributing to worldwide terrorism. Members of the most violent American neo-Nazi groups have recruited veterans from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as active duty service member. And that military expertise is now being shared with white supremacists in other countries. This is something else that merits examination. I also want to say that it's very important that everybody in leadership speak out against white supremacy in the ranks. This is a bipartisan issue. It has been for a long time. And it should really be a no-brainer that this has to be done by everybody from the commander-in-chief on down. So in closing... I want to just say that I agree with former Joint Chiefs Chairman General Joseph Dunford, who said, there is no place for bigotry and racism in the U.S. military or the United States as a whole. I hope the policy suggestions I provided here and in writing can bring us closer to eradicating these ideas from the ranks of our incomparable armed forces. It's been an honor to speak here. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Byrich. Uh, next is Dr. Pitkavich. Chairwoman Speer, Ranking Member Kelly, Distinguished members of the subcommittee, good afternoon. I am Mark Pitcavage, a senior research fellow with ADL Center on Extremism. The issue of extremism in the military is one ADL Center on Extremism has tracked for years. In 2009, ADL wrote then-Secretary of Defense Robert M. Gates, urging him to take measures to deal with white supremacy in the armed forces. The problem has only grown in urgency since then. In my testimony, I would like to share important context about the nature of extremism in the armed forces. Our active and reserve components are large enough, numbering over 2 million men and women, to reflect broader American society in key ways, including the presence of extremism. Each time the white supremacist movement has surged in the U.S., that surge has been mirrored by a similar increase within the armed forces. It happened during surges in the 1980s, the 1990s, and in 2008 to 2011. Today, it is happening again as the U.S. is experiencing a surge in white supremacy propelled by the rise of the alt-right, which has brought many young, newly radicalized white males into the white supremacy movement. This is aggravated by the spread of hate online. With each surge, the military incurs not only an increase in extremists, but also increases in crime and violence that accompany that. Extremists in the military have planned terrorist acts. They've engaged in murders and hate crimes and stolen weapons and military equipment. And they provided information to other extremists. The current surge of white supremacy is no exception. Less than two weeks ago, Coast Guard Lieutenant Christopher Hassan was sentenced in federal court to 13 years in prison in connection with a plot to commit domestic terrorism. Prosecutors described Hassan as a man inspired by racist murderers who intended to exact retribution on minorities and those he considered traitors. Had law enforcement not caught him, they noted, we would now be counting the bodies of the defendant's victims. Internet searches Hassan made included, where do congressmen and senators live when they are in D.C., how to rid the U.S. of Jews, and most liberal federal judges, among others. Hassan wrote, I can't strike just to wound. I must find a way to deliver a blow that cannot be shaken off. Other extremists in the military in recent years have distributed information related to explosives and WMDs, assaulted people during white supremacist rallies, acquired bombs and explosive materials, 
and used a firearm to threaten members of a mosque. Even more have been exposed attending white supremacist events, joining extremist groups, distributing racist propaganda, and posting to white supremacist chat rooms and forums online. The presence of extremists in the armed forces is dangerous to service members, their families, and others, and harmful to the good order, discipline, morale, and effectiveness of our troops. It is a problem that the military cannot afford to ignore. ADL's experiences working with the services have caused us concern that policies and regulations are not always widely or uniformly implemented, nor are key personnel always trained in systematic fashion. We encourage you to work with the department and the services to ensure uniformity and clarity of regulations, to provide proper training for those involved in recruitment, discipline, and military justice on how to respond to evidence of extremism. We offer our expertise and experience to help the services tackle this issue, including developing curricula or train-the-trainer events. Most importantly, we encourage all DOD and military leaders, as well as you, to speak out against hate. Setting an example from the top is essential. We must protect the men and women who protect our nation. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Next is Ms. Brooks. Thank you, Chairwoman Speer, Ranking Member Kelly, Committee Members. Thank you so much. My name is Leisha Brooks. I'm the daughter of a veteran of the Korean War. I'm the mother of a son who proudly served the U.S. Army for two tours. This issue is deeply personal to me. The white nationalist movement in the United States is surging and presents a serious danger to our country and its institutions, including the U.S. Armed Forces. Recent investigations have revealed dozens of veterans and active duty service members who are affiliated with white nationalist activity. This is far from a new problem. In fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center has been documenting white nationalists and white supremacist infiltration of the military and urging officials to take action since 1986. In that year, we wrote Defense Secretary Weinberger and exposed the fact that active duty Marines at Camp Lejeune were participating in paramilitary Ku Klux Klan activities and even stealing military weaponry for Klan use. In December 2019, as was mentioned, it was reported that the National Defense Authorization Act was altered in the U.S. Senate to remove the mention of white nationalists in the screening process for military enlistees. According to the 2019 poll that was referenced by the Military Times, 36% of active duty service members who were surveyed reported seeing signs of white nationalism or racist ideology in the U.S. Armed Forces. In the same survey, more than half of the service members of color reported experiencing incidents of racism or racist ideology. A number of plots by white nationalists have been thwarted. The arrest of Lieutenant Christopher Paul Hasten, a 49-year-old serving in the Coast Guard, provides a recent example. Hasten, who had also spent time in the Marine Corps and the Army National Guard, was recently sentenced to more than 13 years in prison. He explicitly identified as white nationalists and advocated for the establishment of a white ethno-state. SPLC has identified dozens of former and active military personnel among the membership of some of the country's most dangerous white nationalist and white supremacist groups. Those groups include the Autumn Waffen Division, a neo-Nazi group whose members have allegedly been responsible for five murders since 2017. 
Brandon Russell, who launched Autumn Waffen in 2015, served in the Florida Army National Guard. After his roommate, Devin Arthurs, killed two other roommates who were also members of Autumn Waffen, police found explosive materials. A framed photo of Army veteran and Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh was found in Russell's bedroom. He also possessed flyers that read, Don't prepare for exams, prepare for race war. It appears Russell joined the National Guard in order to receive the kind of skills he would need to prepare for that potential race war. Altogether, investigators have found seven members of Autumn Waffen who have served in the military. Because of their sophisticated weapons and explosive training, those members significantly increased the group's potential to carry out deadly attacks. Russell has since been sentenced to five years in prison on charges related to the explosive materials found in the apartment. From prison, he has attempted to send instructions for building explosives to another member of the neo-Nazi group. The recent arrest of two trained soldiers, one from the United States and one from Canada, who belong to a terroristic white nationalist group called The Base, have heightened our fears that they are now forming paramilitary cells. In 2006, the SPLC released a report highlighting the continuing presence of white nationalists in the military and once again reached out to ask the Department of Defense to implement a zero-tolerance policy on white supremacy. And again, in 2008 and 2009, we wrote letters to the DOD urging investigations. Today, the SPLC offers the following recommendations. One, adopt and rigorously enforce a zero-tolerance policy on white nationalist and supremacist activity across all branches of the military. Two, require an annual report from military leadership that includes an audit of all investigations and resolutions of white nationalist and white supremacist activity. Three, blunt the reach and impact of white nationalist and supremacist ideology by offering support services that work to de-radicalize active duty service members and veterans exposed to hateful and violent messages. We urge this committee and this Congress to use its powers to purge from its ranks those who would mar the reputation and courageous work of our dedicated U.S. service members. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Brooks. Thank you for your testimony. It, it's um, jarring, to say the very least, and is a very important wake-up call for all of us. Let me ask you this. Um, We've got the dark web, so individuals can gravitate to the dark web to engage in their social media if they're so inclined. How would you recommend that the military do the kind of monitoring that's necessary? Doctor? Yeah, well, honestly... Oftentimes, to find social media accounts, you don't really have to go into super secret areas to find them. It's material that tends to be oftentimes on everything from Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts, or in places like 4chan, which are searchable. Um, That's not to say that there aren't areas of the web that are hidden um, and hard to get to to find this information. But people are shockingly open about their extremist views. And it's the kind of material that should be easy for investigators or people talking to potential recruits to verify, especially if they're self-reporting, that they're not involved in terrorist organizations or extremist organizations. You can find a lot of this material without too much difficulty. And I would advise that that seems like the first screening mechanism that should be done. A workplace would do the same with employees, right? And this is the military. So you can find a lot. That doesn't mean it's all there, but there's a lot. All right. Anyone else? 
Doctor? Thank you. I agree with what uh, uh, my colleague, Dr. Byrick, said. There is extremist material on the dark web, um, but the dark web is dark to extremists as well. And it's easier for them to find other extremists and other extremist material on the regular Internet. And unfortunately, there are many places and many platforms online from large mainstream social media platforms and other tech platforms to more obscure ones where they can do that. And a lot of this is actually accessible to people who want to investigate this or want to monitor this if they're educated on where to look and what to look for. And so... This is not necessarily an insurmountable problem. This is something that can be tackled to at least a certain degree. Uh, in your estimation, as you have um, sought to inform the military investigators of information that you have uncovered, how have they responded? Well, for the years that I was working at the Southern Poverty Law Center, this was one of my main areas of work. And I would say that starting in some of the time period that Ms. Brooks pointed out in 2006, 2008, there was a reluctance on the part of the military to take these issues seriously. I remember at one point, myself and some of my colleagues brought dozens and dozens of forum pages of active duty service member on from a website called New Saxon, a neo-Nazi website, and showed that these people were praising Hitler, using racial slurs, they were active duty and something needed to be done. And the military at that time was not very responsive to our idea that prior regulations only required card-carrying members of hate groups to be removed from the military. But that changed in 2009. So the regulations were tightened up and strengthened. The question, I think, really at this point is things about loopholes, like militia members who are in the service, anything that's sort of more blatantly racist as opposed to hardcore white supremacist, how it's treated and how the regulations are enforced. That would be my suggestion. Screening mechanisms, enforcement, and then there's just a lack of data, right, for the public to know exactly what's happening. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ranking Member Kelly. You can only swear a true allegiance to one cause. You either are the United States of America or whatever organization that is, and I think you're exactly right. Um, I've, I've been the direct target of an assassination attempt by an extremist. Not the same line, but I, I've been a direct target. A guy tried to shoot me from here to you. Tried to shoot me in the chest for no reason other than he didn't like my political views, but he didn't know me. We've got to stamp this out. One is too many. You know, and it's easy to look at it as a, uh, as a small issue, unless you're the one who's the small issue is over. And so every single person who violates the oath and allegiance to the United States of America and to the military of America should be rooted out because they can't have an allegiance to both. So that being said, uh, I want to I ask you, what can we do in the current military to either train or change cultural ideas or issues to identify people who are violating that oath and allegiance to our United States of America? What can we do to train that better or to change the culture better? 
Well, I just I just wanted to add the social media issue is important. Training, as Dr. Pitt Cavage said, is absolutely important. Setting standards from the get-go when somebody comes into the military about what is expected and what's not. But I do think, um, in addition to everything that Dr. Pitt Cavage said, there is the issue of how big or how dedicated the investig- investigatory mechanisms are in the military to look for exactly these problems, especially when they escalate. Training can be dealt with with a sexist remark or racist remark. You want to stop that immediately. You want to set standards. But to find hardcore um, extremists, it's going to be a little more difficult. They may try to hide what they're up to. You know, it's hard to know. And some of the press reports I've been reading about all of this in the last few weeks indicate that perhaps there aren't the investigatory uh, mechanisms and sharing of information at the level of the criminal investigative services across the agencies that needs to be there. And I would suggest that be beefed up. And finally, I just have a few more seconds left. But I, I think it's incumbent, and I'm talking uh, not to you guys at the table today, but all of DOD across and every leader from uh, the, the team level at the E5 level to the four stars in command of, of, of large organizations we must not allow any of these things to take place. And when we see it wrong, we've got to correct it on the spot, and we've got to let people know we won't tolerate any type of racism, sexism, or anything throughout the military. And thank you guys for being here today and testifying on this very important matter. I yield back. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Holland, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you all so much for being here this afternoon um, to talk on this important topic. Um, I come from a district with a large Hispanic population that makes up 40% of my constituents. This diversity is what makes our communities rich, and I'll continue to fight for all groups to have equal access to opportunities and the right to serve in an inclusive and dignified environment. Let me be clear, hateful ideologies of any kind have no place in our military. Ms. Brooks, this past August, media outlets reported that a master sergeant in the Air Force was an active member of Identity Europa, one of the most visible neo-Nazi and white supremacist organizations in Colorado. The Air Force released a statement saying, racism, bigotry, hatred, and discrimination have no place in the Air Force, but Sergeant Reeves remained in the Air Force. Only recently, after facing intense pressure, did the Air Force decide to begin the process of removing him from the military? And that's a concern to me. Wouldn't you agree that this undermines diversity initiatives as well as morale and unit cohesion? And could you elaborate? Thank you so much for the question. You're absolutely right. It goes against all of what the U.S. Armed Forces are about. And I would just say a a bit about Identity Europa. They're a very noxious group of white nationalists who spread the very disinformation that Chairwoman Spear was was mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's important as far as the education campaign and the things that we need to do to address these issues is to challenge this misinformation or this disinformation. White nationalists advocate for a white ethnic state. They put forth conspiracy theories with respect to white genocide and the Great Replacement. It's nothing to be played with. If we allow these noxious beliefs to continue as our diversity continues across the country, this is what we're dealing with. You spoke to the diversity in your area, in your district, and the U.S. is experiencing kind of great demographic shifts, and that is not playing well with a lot of white folks, and so they're putting forward this false narrative that there's a white genocide afoot. So it is important, it is extremely important that we address this head on. 
Thank you. And based on your expertise, I think I know the answer to this. Would you say that the services should adopt a zero tolerance policy for personnel that are involved in these? Yes, um, ma'am. The Southern Poverty Law Center's first recommendation is that we adopt and rigorously apply a zero tolerance policy. As mm-hmm. you say, you can't on the one hand say that we don't stand for racism, you know, we won't stand for racism of any kind, and then allow members to, mm-hmm. to remain in the armed yes. forces. You are listening to experts testifying about white supremacists in the military on February 11, 2020, before the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Military Personnel. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Ivarum. Stay with us. We going ultra black. I got a toast to that. We don't fold the crack. We going occasion we rose to that. Going postal, we going ultra black. Watching the global change, hopping the coldest range. Hip boy on the beat, this poster slap. We going ultra black. We going, we going. Rhythm and blues, pop, rock, soul to jazz, to my toes attack. How I look being told, I'm not supposed to brag. Nobody fought, I tell the truth, I know what's facts. We ultra black, gray stone, skin tone, but multi that. Multiple colors, we come in all shades, mocha black. Except where I'm at and I fight me on it. Emotional stares like I might be wanted. Pitch black like the night, I'm ultra black. Said for the sun, reruns, jokes are black. Oh yes, oh yes, God bless success. We going ultra black, like the S is fast. Talk with a mask on, the freshest breath. African black soap, caress the flesh. Super fly the Mac, sitting fly in the lack. Take the boat on the water, history talks with my daughter. My son will be my resurrection. Constantly learning lessons. I never die, you get the message. I hope you be better than I. Life's precious, two stepping. Sometimes I'm over black, even my clothes are black. Cash money with the white tee and the soldier rag. We going ultra black, unapologetically black. The opposite of Doja Cat, Michael Black's in black. We going ultra black, I got a toast to that. We don't fold the crack. Occasion we rose to that, going postal. We going ultra black, watching the global change, hopping the coldest range. Hit boy on the beat, poster slap. We going ultra black. We going. We goin' ultra black, Raiders Oakland hat, I smoke to that, pre-rolls and yet, what's the results to that? See notes and bags, she knows I'm classy like I'm Billy D. Williams, go ultra black, Isaac Kennedy films, penitentiary too, black like out in the loop, black don't crack, it's like the fountain of youth, the coach is black, like Iman, she beautiful, goin' ultra black, to Africa, you say go back, I stay pro-black, my Amex black. Black like cornrows, afros, black like hat, black ball from the Super Bowl. College, holler notes, I can't go for that. Motown Museum, Detroit, I'm ultra black. This for New York and all the map. No matter your race, to me, we all are black. We going ultra black, I got a toast to that. We don't fold the crack. We don't fold the crack. Occasion we rose to that. Going postal. We going ultra black, watching the global change, hopping the coldest range. Hip boy on the beat. Poster slap, we, we going ultra black. Black is beautiful. Black is beautiful. Ms. Luria, you are recognized for five minutes. 
Thank you, and thank you to the panel for being here to discuss this important issue today. You mentioned in your testimony a recent uh, Military Times poll that revealed that more than one-third of respondents and more than half of minority respondents said that they've personally witnessed examples of white nationalism or ideologically driven racism within the ranks within uh, the recent months from the time that the poll was taken. We agree that the DOD policies regarding white supremacists and extremists activities must be clear, they must be transparent. And, you know, I've looked here at this DOD policy, it dates to 2009, with a revision from 2012. And as we know, there's rapidly evolving use of social media and different means for spreading information. Are there specific things due to the policy, you know, being almost a decade old, that you think merit, um, you know, updating a revision by DOD or the services to, to make this policy more enforceable, more relevant to current technology or, or any of those other aspects? Yes, Dr. Pitkovich and um, Ms. Brooks as well. I think you also referenced um, in your written testimony the same survey from Military Time. I think you bring up a key issue. You know, extremism constantly evolves, and so the methods the military must take to deal with extremism evolve too. Our current regulations, you know, actually parts of them date back to the 1960s. And they were appended um, in the 1980s, appended again in the 1990s, appended again when you mentioned it. But uh, uh, I think there are some specific things that we may want to look at. So, for example, white supremacy today is less group-dependent than it used to be, in part because of the Internet. You can be very active in the white supremacist movement without necessarily belonging to a specific group. Yet if you look at our regulations, a lot of them refer specifically to organized groups rather than a broader movement. That may be something that needs to be addressed. But we may also want to take a look at those regulations more comprehensively and holistically to see from the start to the finish, maybe they need to be rewritten to deal with modern circumstances rather than just modifying or appending, you know, once more. Thank you for the question. I would add that I would encourage military leaders to listen to their troops. This military time survey was about 1,600 people, and they interviewed, surveyed people in the military. They themselves said that they saw the whole scourge of white nationalism and white supremacy being a more a greater threat to the homeland than you know foreign terrorism or anti-immigration combined. And I would also point out that, that you referred to um, the incidents where, where service members of color experienced racist um, incidents. And I think it's important to point out that they saw swastikas on military bases. They saw individuals saluting, using the Nazi salute with one another. There were, you know, kind of graffiti Things that we find that we wouldn't expect to find in the military. I completely agree with, with my colleague that, that certainly the, the regulations need to be updated, but the important thing is that we take a serious stand. As was said there, um, after the desegregation of the armed forces, it was from the top to every, every single person in the military. Hey, same from the same page. And that needs to happen again when we're talking about white supremacy and white nationalism. There can be no equivocation. Thank you. And I, I know, Dr. Barich, did you have anything further to add on this topic? I'm with the remainder. I, I, just one addition. I agree with what was said here about taking a look at these constantly appended regulations. But the fact of the matter is if they're not applied, 
it's it's pointless. And this case in Colorado where a person who's an active duty military service and is a member of Identity Europa would be banned based on the 1985 regulations that Weinberger put in place. So he was demoted a rank, not removed from the military service. So, you know, if you don't follow through with the whole process, it's, it's a little pointless. And, and so I, I suggest that be looked at very seriously. Thank you. I yield back. Thank you, Ms. Escobar. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I, I'm very grateful that we're having this discussion. And to our panelists, thank you very much for being here and for uh, sharing this important information with us. I represent El Paso, Texas, which was targeted last summer on August 3rd. We had a domestic terrorist who confessed to driving over 600 miles and 10 hours because he said he wanted to essentially slaughter Mexicans and immigrants, and he lamented the quote-unquote Hispanic invasion. And these are words that he repeated that we have heard from some of the most powerful leaders in the land, Um, the same language used to describe members of my community by some of our elected officials. And so this is, I think, a very important discussion, and I think something that was mentioned earlier, we have to call this out. When we don't call it out, we essentially give it cover. When we give it cover, we give it life and we give it power. And there's no greater testament to that than what happened in El Paso, Texas on August 3rd. I want to, um, and I'm going to open up this question to all three of our panelists. I want to first acknowledge that military leaders have taken steps to publicize their opposition to the hatred and extremism that's been on display at events like the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I applaud our military leaders for saying unequivocally that those are not our values. However, I was deeply disappointed to see an individual nominated for the top personnel job at the department who has espoused dangerous a dangerous and radical intolerance for multiculturalism in America, which is essentially the foundation of who we are as a country. J. David Patterson was a presidential appointment, but he previously served as a principal deputy undersecretary. Should we be concerned that someone who, obviously he was a, a a presidential nominee, but he was within the Department of Defense for many years and rose through the ranks. What does it tell us that someone is able to ascend in this manner with these kinds of views about minorities and about America? Well, I'll just say that I think it's completely unacceptable. You cannot have somebody working in the Department of Defense involved with the Armed Forces, the Pentagon, who doesn't believe the bedrock principles about equality. Um, and that's been said from, you know, top generals and other officials for a very long time and is stated in these regulations. So it just should not be the case that somebody who disagrees with that vision of our society and how it's reflected in the armed forces should be in any position of power. Yes, sir. Um, Representative, first, um, um, I'd like just, just to say that uh, – I share the grief that you felt over El Paso. Um, I grew up in El Paso. Uh, my family still lives in El Paso, and uh, I used to—excuse me—I mm. used to ride my bike to the to the place where the shooting occurred. 
Um, I think I think Representative Kelly um, made an excellent point when he talked about the military as being one of the most diverse institutions in our country. Um, the forty uh, percent of our, our military personnel, active duty military personnel, are a racial or ethnic minority. More than fifty percent of of the women in the services are. And our military recognizes over 200 religious faiths. And we need leaders who, civilian and military leaders alike, who appreciate, acknowledge, and support um, that diversity, which is a strength. Absolutely. I'm adding my condolences as well and to, and to you. I think it, it, it shows us and reminds us that one person, and I think the ranking member mentioned that one person can do so much damage. That's why it's important for each of us to call it out each and every time. And with the very limited time I have, Dr. Barrick, you mentioned screening mechanisms. Could you give us an example of one of the, like, what we could do, something tangible? Well, I think one of the most important things here is the way, what happens with recruits when they come in is they self-report what their activities have been and so on. It's not very detailed. It says things like, have you been part of a or domestic terrorist organization or something along those lines? I think the question should be deeper. There should be more about people's racial views, views about ethnicity, religion. And I also think that people that are coming into the military need to report basically what their social media accounts look like and then be verified. Whether that's to intervene at that point to help someone move away from these views or it's to simply say that this is an unacceptable situation. So those are the kinds of things that I would look at. And military climate surveys should include questions about these issues, as was proposed by the House in this last uh, Defense Authorization Act. And they don't right now. So the Military Times polls now three years in a row, which show these horrifying numbers of how many people have seen white nationalism and extremism in the military, are a stand-in for that, right? And the military should be collecting that information. And let me just say, with the 2017 Military Times poll, if, if the numbers are accurate to the full amount of active duty troops at that time, which was about 1.3 million, it would mean 325,000 people in the armed forces had seen white nationalism or racism. That's a pretty extraordinary number. And giving the numbers, as, uh, as Dr. Pickavage just pointed out, that's a whole lot of minority troops, right, troops of color, who are suffering under this situation. And, and frankly, it would be a hostile work environment if it was in, mm-hmm. in the civilian world. So, I mean, it's a serious matter, and data is needed, and then that data needs to be addressed. Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Pickavage. I yield back. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Cisneros, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman, and thank you. Uh, thanks to our panel for being here today. Um, mm-hmm. uh, according to an article in ProPublica in 2018, the, the Ottomwaffen Division, a violent neo-Nazi group uh, tied to five murders in a barn plot, um, at least some of their members were serving in the U.S. Armed Forces, and you just stated that. I'm going to ask the panelists, in your opinion, how high a priority is the focus of military leadership on eliminating white supremacy from our military ranks? And I know you said there were regulations that we've written, but my other question, too, is why haven't we put these groups in the UCMJ, outlawing them in the UCMJ? Well, that's a very good question, and it's hard to know how to answer what you're saying. The, the only data that I could find is that about 25 troops, not all of them white supremacists, were removed in a five-year period 
for extremist ties. I think the, those numbers are ridiculously low. Just in the testimonies that we have written for you all here, all of us, we've do- documented more than that in the last year. So I, I think that there's a big problem here in trying to figure out how many investigations go on of this, who is identifying extremists, how is this being reported. There is supposedly a report the Pentagon does every year internally on white supremacy in the military. Is that happening? What is it indicating? I'm just, it's very hard to answer your question because there's no transparency and no data. Thank you very much, and I yield back. Uh, now we will hear from uh, the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Brown. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to wave on to the committee today. Uh, I want to thank the members of the uh, Military Personnel Subcommittee for your work. You wrestle with some of the thorniest issues uh, that uh, face uh, Congress in the uh, House Armed Services Committee. Ms. Brooks, I think you're right. Uh, we should listen to our uh, soldiers. Uh, there are a lot of ways that, that uh, the military can, commanders the, and the chain of command, EO officers, inspector generals, JAG officers, chaplains, and also uh, climate surveys. And Dr. Byrich, you mentioned in your testimony about the watering down of a, a provision uh, in the NDA that was offered by the House. I was the lead author and uh, joined by a number of my colleagues. Uh, these hearings are often an opportunity for us to really establish the record uh, that supports what we're trying to accomplish in the NDA. In that amendment, uh, it was very specific. It said that the, the Secretary of Defense will include or shall include in the workplace an equal opportunity, command climate and workplace and gender relations surveys administered by the Office of People Analytics of the Department of Defense, questions regarding whether respondents have ever experienced or witnessed in the workplace supremacist activity, extremist activity, or racism. It probably also should include anti-Semitism, and whether you've reported uh, activity described uh, in paragraph one. It was watered down to include extremist uh, activity. And I think, uh, Ms. Brooks, in your written testimony, you pointed out how in the screening procedures, that too was watered down. Somewhere between the House and coming through conference, someone, somebody, some organization is, is a, has an aversion to the, the use of either white supremacy or supremacist activity in the NDAA, and it gets watered down. So could you please make the strongest argument why, whether it's in screening or whether it's in the survey, we have to be specific? Well, let me just say, aside from the danger to the troops themselves, especially troops of color, and, and thank you for pursuing this, this issue because I think it's critically important. The biggest problem is that white supremacy is distinct from other forms of extremism, and it is deadly to the United States. We've had far too many former soldiers. Timothy McVeigh is best known, but Eric uh, Rudolph, who bombed um, the Olympics in 96, and many other soldiers who've been involved in serious domestic terrorist attacks were people who shared that particular point of view. And those people then are coming out of the military and joining up with groups like the base that was mentioned here, Autumn Waffen, or their active duty. And they're a threat to the American public, and they're a threat to people overseas, anywhere white supremacy is functioning, anywhere our troops are if they're involved in these, these issues. And white supremacy is a distinct problem. It's also indigenous to the United States. I don't think we should forget this, right? White supremacy is born and bred out of our history. And it needs to be tackled. The armed forces have been a shining light in calling this out. So we should be specific. We need to know, are people around you have white supremacist views, white nationalist ideas? What are you seeing? This is really critical information to stop domestic terrorism, hate crimes, 
all kinds of violence. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your efforts as well. I, I would, and I completely agree with where, everything that Dr. Byrick said, I, I would point your colleagues in, in Congress back to the joint resolution that was passed unanimously um, post-Charlottesville. And in there, they, they rejected, and they named it, white nationalism, white supremacy, neo-Nazism, as hateful expressions of intolerance that are a contradiction to the, val the values that define the people of the United States. We cannot just say these things post-crisis or post-massacre. We have to to be about trying to thwart these attempts every day. Because as Dr. Byrus said, I mean, it's a, it's a clear and present danger. I don't know how to make it more clear. Our history shows it, and we will just continue to repeat it until we, we, we face it head on. White supremacy is just that serious. You have been listening to testimony about white supremacists in the military on February 11, 2020, before the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Military Personnel. The hearing was chaired by Representative Jackie Speer of California. Experts testifying included Heidi Byrick, co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, Mark Pitcavage, senior research fellow for the Center on Extremism at the Anti-Defamation League, and Leisha Brooks, chief officer for workplace transformation at the Southern Poverty Law Center. In recent weeks, Congress debated, then included in the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, an amendment to rename military bases named now for Confederate leaders. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, that's On the Ground W, Esther Ivarum, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Ultra Black by Nas, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is the last of three shows featuring unheard voices from this year of activism. We'll be back with our regular programming, including our headlines next week. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>